0: Welcome to the Spotlight Series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy! Hi, welcome to Surviving Society Spotlight Season. My name is Srila Roy and I'm going to be your host for this episode. I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, where I also head Development Studies. My research concerns are, to put it very broadly, uh, gender and sexuality in the Global South. And I'm currently completing a second book, uh, which is looking at contemporary feminist and queer politics in India. And I'm also editing a volume of essays on Me Too in India and South Africa. And I'm going to be in conversation today with Professor Carmen Geha from the American University of Beirut, who I'm gonna now ask to introduce herself. Welcome, Carmen. Thank you so much,
1: Professor Roy, for hosting me. My name is Carmen Geha. I am Associate Professor of Public Administration, and I'm also a founding member of the Center for Inclusive Business and Leadership for Women at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. I do research on the challenges to women's political and economic participation, across the Arab MENA region, Middle East and North Africa. I also work on protest movements and I look at refugee politics and policies because Lebanon hosts the highest number of refugees per capita worldwide and yet does not recognize them as legal refugees. So I look at the uh, refugees, protests and women.
0: Okay, thanks Carmen. So I just want to provide some context as to why we're having this conversation and what really we're we're going to talk about. So exactly a year ago, I mean, almost to the day I visited the American University of Beirut on the invitation of the Women and Gender Studies program there, but really thanks to Carmen, who I had met at VETS uh, earlier that year. And at the time of my visit, the revolution, the popular revolution against the sectarian and corrupt political class in Lebanon was at its peak. The city felt like a revolutionary site where everyday life was um, mediated by it and spaces were marked by the revolution in really vivid ways. Uh, For instance, in the graffiti, which was also about gender and sexual rights in ways that slightly surprised me. It was really quite a experience, I think quite a singular experience to be in Beirut at the time. Now, close on the heels of that trip in December 2019, India, my home and site of research, experienced its own unexpected mass uprising against an authoritarian uh, right-wing Hindu government. In both Lebanon and India, these revolutions were forced to cease in the face of the COVID pandemic and lockdowns. But they also endured through them. So I followed the developments in Lebanon quite closely, both with hope and frustration, as I've thought about what's been happening in my home in India, in South Africa, where I currently live, and also in the Global South more broadly, where we've been witnessing some of the most robust struggles against authoritarian and neoliberal regimes in the world, but also really hideous forms of state repression. As an activist scholar who writes quite regularly for different forms of media, Carmen has really, I think, deepened my knowledge and understanding of what's happening, not just Lebanon, but more broadly in the Global South as I think I know you will today as well, Carmen, in this conversation. So I just want to start by asking you a little bit uh, about your own research and how you're, as I see it, really committed to producing knowledge about Lebanon, but also social change. Thank you so much. Yes, I should say that it was a
1: grant by the Mellon Foundation that allowed me to be at WITS last year, uh, hosted by Professors Didier Fassin, Sarah Natal, Ah, and Ashil Mbembe as a second phase of the fellowship program at the Institute for Advanced Study the summer before, I'm just putting that to say that my visit to South Africa and this first conversation that I get to have in a really empirical and very political manner between me and South Africa and the Global South really opened my eyes to the role of the university. What is it that we need to be doing with our knowledge? And deepened my commitment to produce knowledge, not just for the sake of giving back to the community, but but producing knowledge that is co-designed and co-conceptualized with the community. So when I work on refugee movements. I speak to refugees of all ages, of all backgrounds. My second book project is about the Syrian refugees who cannot return back. How do they imagine their futures? What is a plausible future for them? And why is it that they don't think that going back home is an option? Same for protest movements. I mean, I'm an activist turned scholar and not the other way around. I've been an activist for many, many years. And then I went and did a PhD as sort of trying to broaden my understanding, connect with different contexts. So yes, there is a deep commitment, I think. um, And I don't know which one trumps the other. I don't know if activism is before scholar or scholar is before activism, but they're mixed together. And uh, yeah, thank you for saying that, you know, what I'm doing helps you understand better what's happening. We have had a horrible year uh, that turned hellish with the explosion. So I feel it's our obligation to be speaking out on the multiplicity of the crisis, the intersectionality of the crisis. Uh, As survivors, by coincidence Mm. of the explosion, all of us feel that we survived by coincidence. So what can we do next that's better, faster, more transdisciplinary, to at least, if we cannot fix, limit some of the mental and emotional damage on all of us.
0: Okay, so for maybe audiences who aren't um, so aware of what's been happening since uh, since last year, I mean, obviously, there are much longer embedded histories, but particularly made more acute with the pandemic and then the explosion. Do you, do you want to just say a little bit about that, but also maybe connected to how that's maybe uh, implicated your research at the moment or your thinking and your pedagogy? Uh,
1: Yes. Uh, So Lebanon has a sectarian power sharing system, which means that a group of people who are mainly men, brokered a deal many, many years ago that their way to stay in power is to make sure that the system is sectarian, that they are aligned with religious courts, with the banks and with people who have weapons. Uh, We had a 17-year civil war that couldn't change the formula, the basic formula that the only way to govern is through power sharing and sectarian warlord. After the war ended in 1990, those men, you know, washed their hands from blood and made a deal that they will continue in the same manner of sectarian power sharing, basically dividing the spoils of the state among themselves. This didn't change for 30 years. In October 2019, people took to the streets, It was a moment where all of us came together, like you said, Srila, that it was feminist groups, marginalized groups, you know, university professors, students, mothers. Mm -hmm. It was sort of an intersectional moment where it had been bottling up for so many years. Little did we know, although I should have expected it because I work on power sharing politics, I should have expected that they would crush us with severe oppression. But I couldn't expect, and I don't think anybody expected that aside of police violence, increased censorship, that we would actually also lose all our money in the banks. My dad worked for 48 years, and the bank took away his dollars. Lebanon defaulted. Our foreign reserves are out. Our currency has inflated by 500%. All of this was in parallel with the pandemic hitting Lebanon, and because of the neoliberal model of hospitals and healthcare, it meant that we didn't have enough ventilators and hospital beds back in March. So you can imagine how bad it is today. Then came the explosion of the century with tons of explosives. I don't know what they are. There's mixed reviews about what they are. Uh, immediately killed 200 people and then not so immediately. Just last week, Dima Qaisi died in a coma after being in her injuries for 83 days. We're still burying our dead, but the power sharing system prevails. It's still the same men who hate each other publicly but need each other to stay in power, who are making deals, uh, appointing uh, uh, officials, uh, meeting each other, congratulating each other. There's not been a single arrest. We don't know until now even the nature and the implications of the explosion. So how it affected my research, I I was not the same person after August 4th. I could not go back to the classroom. I could not even go see my family. What was I to say to them? I mean, I could not. So I screamed and I cried for many, many days. And then we came together as a community, you know, two days later and said, we have to do something. So. I don't know if it's my research or my activism, but we created Khadat Beirut. It's called the Shake-Up, and mm-hmm. we are about 100 scholars here, but also worldwide uh, from different disciplines, ranks, age groups, backgrounds, expertise with athletes and business owners and artists that are saying we need to create an inclusive roadmap for recovery because these corrupt inept negligent arrogant warlords are not going to do anything to fix it we have to try to fix it and build it ourselves we were also told by many experts around the world and scholars that the nature the extent the timing of this bombing is very unique there's not been a bombing at a time of a pandemic there's not been a bombing that wasn't coupled you know with accountability there's not been a pandemic amidst financial collapse there's not been a pandemic with only a caretaker government because they can't figure out who to appoint so we had to build this roadmap ourselves. We came together from nursing, mental health, chemistry, science, environmental health, political science, sociology, education, and so we have to do something.
0: I mean, I I wonder if then we should just step back and think a little bit about the construct of the activist scholar, right? Because it feels like uh, in what you're describing, but in many conditions of crises, but even conditions of everyday life in the global south, You know, one has to actually be a scholar who is engaged in the here and now in very specific ways. What being an activist scholar means to you? Is that something you've always seen yourself? Or do you just see it as, you know, this is what it is in terms of the current conditions?
1: I think in Beirut, the lines are very blurred for for many of us. Um, I think that the university as a space to engage in the liberal arts, critical thinking and activism, is a very important space for our political maturity because the country doesn't allow it. So you don't. I mean, last week, I was talking to my students on gender and elections, and I gave you know a really passionate lecture. I care a lot about this. I've been thinking about it for a long time. And they said, and they were really silent. I said, you know, what's the problem? When I was your age, you know, I was like always on the streets. And are you not interested? And they said, we've never had this conversation. We've never talked about it. We don't talk about it at home. We're not allowed you know, at school, because many schools are very paranoid. They said, you know, at school, we're not allowed, you'd be punished to talk about politics. And I said, I remembered, I thought, you know, me too. I mean, my parents also didn't want us to be, you know, so knowledgeable, so as to maybe shield us from how dirty politics was. And so Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, by design, those of us engaged in countries like Lebanon that suffer with so much oppressive structures, the university becomes a space for activism. The choice has been made after August fourth. I mean, I have I have to do this work. We cannot do it removed from the community. We can't go teach people what they want. Mm-hmm. We have to think about it together.
0: But you've also had a you know a, a, a slightly non conventional route or entry into academia? My,
1: my revolution against my parents was to go and do politics. And uh, at the time mm-hmm. it was quite dangerous. After 2005, uh, you know, the Syrian troops left Lebanon after uh, close to a 30-year occupation. I was really excited. I was really, you know, I thought things are going to change. You know, 2009 would have been the elections. Four years later, after the Syrians left, yay, freedom. And then that didn't happen. So I worked in election monitoring for many, many months and in civil society activism many, many months. Started a lot of coalitions, access to information. I mean, it was at the time where the basics were very exciting, like the right to vote you know, the right to be represented, access to information, youth and citizenship, those kind of conversations. And then when in 2009, not much changed, I figured um, I need to take some time to think. Uh, So I went to, to do a PhD in St. Andrews in 2009. And then in 2010, of course, the Arab uprisings happened. So I could not do Lebanon alone. And I spent three years comparing Libya's civil society experience, which at the time, 2011, was jubilant. But Lebanon. Was not jubilant right so it had been mm. you know four or five years of, of not you know no reforms happening in lebanon and then there was libya where thousands of people were talking about constitutional reform and elections and women's quota so my phd became about that it was about civil society and the constraints on reform looking at lebanon and libya as distinct mm. context and times but with similar patterns uh, where reform doesn't happen because civil society does not end up sitting on the table properly. Um, and that's a book, it's published by Routledge in 2016. And while I was doing my PhD, I was in, in the uh, private sector because I was paying for it myself. So I was doing a lot of work on social entrepreneurship development, uh, advising a lot of UN agencies and governments across the region. And then the moment I did my Viva, I applied for a position at AUB, became a visiting assistant professor, fell in love with that new, felt so lucky to be able to finally teach and think and theorize because I had been running on the streets, Mm. literally between London and and Libya and Tripoli and and Lebanon to like sit and think and and theorize. Yeah. And then that was it. It's been six years later. Uh, I just made promotion tenure last summer and then the explosion happened. So
0: (laughs) is that what you want to (laughs) hear? Yeah, it, there are no sort of neat linear stories to tell here. Right. I mean, I am uh, curious, though, just very briefly about why the comparison. I mean, you said you couldn't really study Lebanon on its own. So why the comparison with Libya? Or I mean, this is just me being curious about maybe something in terms of the discipline or the way uh, Lebanon is studied. Why was the comparative angle absolutely essential?
1: You know, I felt I couldn't be removed from the wider context, like to study civil society and Lebanon's protests without what was happening, right? Uh, I felt I needed to think about that. But also my PhD supervisor, Professor Frederick Volpe, who's now at Edinburgh, told me something. I think like the first week I walked into his office, it was really clumsy, you know, coming from Beirut. I was very intimidated by St. Andrews. And he said to me, he said, do you want to be a scholar on Lebanon? Or do you want to be a scholar about civil society and using Lebanon as your entry point? And I thought, no, I don't want to be an expert on my country in that sense. I want to be able, but I haven't yet. I still produce scholarship that's very much around area studies, Lebanon, Lebanon, because I'm very angry. But, you know, he got me to think about, are you interested in the processes of political mobilization and how they interact with oppression, authoritarianism? And I thought, yeah, I'm actually, I came to the UK to study, you know, something bigger than my own burden. So why don't I look at, you know, comparative and use like historical institutionalism, play with big
0: theory to better Mm. understand Lebanon and the region? You know, the the whole idea of area studies, right? And on the one hand, I think um, a lot of us get a bit, I mean, certainly I do, I get a bit defensive if if someone was to tell me, well, is it enough to study just India? Because nobody would say that about the US, right? But on the other hand, and I think particularly having uh, moved to South Africa, I actually really value the comparative lens a lot more now. Because I do think we, it, it, it's odd, because I think we're obviously in this like hyper-globalized moment, but our students don't necessarily think transnationally unless they're forced to. And I, I don't think that's obviously exceptional to, or unique to South African students, even as there is a real sense of South African exceptionalism here. So they don't really engage very much with what's happening on the continent. So, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's just interesting for me to hear you say that, because on the one hand, The whole idea of area studies is is a very kind of colonial model, right? But on the other hand, I do think what you're saying about having this broader lens is a lot more generative than if we were just sticking to, you know, the the nation state framework. It's something I was thinking we'll we'll come to because I'm quite interested in, in, I mean, having been to AUB myself, which I think is an extraordinary space, just to think more about or hear from you more about the kind of students you encounter and so on and so forth. I know your research has changed a bit now, and obviously you said you're, you're doing a lot of very engaged and hands-on projects, but do you want to say a little bit more about in what direction you feel like it's moving at the moment?
1: Um, yeah, so before the explosion, you know, tenure and promotion become something like that you're obsessing with. So I published a lot in area studies journal, and I was like, I wanted to have the conversation. You know around the middle east and i wasn't not ashamed i was you know, it's what i wanted to do but then you know after tenure uh i started thinking with a group of colleagues uh, professor najat saliba who is in uh, chemistry and uh, oh, wow. uh, my dear friend fida Kanan, who is the director of executive education and business so we started to have a conversation just stemming out of you know frustration of what what should we do and this was before the explosion what can we do as scholars in the global south, you know, to to think about the university differently, right? So why would somebody come study at AUB, right? As opposed to Johannesburg or Hong Kong or Harvard. And we started this conversation around, you know, we we do, the three of us, in our different fields, whether it's business chemistry or political science, we produce knowledge that is locally impactful and locally Mm -hmm. anchored, but it's also of global relevance, right? Because these problems around migration and protest and policing and gender are not only in it, it's not only us suffering from them. So how can we produce research using AUB as our home, as our anchor, but also being in proximity to so many vulnerable communities in Lebanon and Lebanon as a tiny country? So we want to stay local because there's a lot of value in being local, but also be able to have globally relevant conversations. And of course, that conceptual framework of local to global, after the explosion becomes our way out of victimhood. So, when I talk to students, I say, yes, we are passing through an incredible tragedy. But look, this is somebody who did it. You know, I discovered the work. I don't know if, you know, Rebecca Solnit, who works on Hope mm. in the Dark, right? So she says, you know, in disaster communities come together, civil society come together to find solace, to find solutions. So, that conversation for me today you know, that I'm not stuck in the region in a political sense, right, frees me by mm-hmm. saying, yeah, I want to be having a transnational conversation, not because it's not important to be local. I mean, I work very, very micro. Like, I go to one school, right? I talk to, like, one women, one political party. Um, I know my size is very limited locally, very ingrained locally. It's very micro. But the findings out of that and the pedagogy and the syllabi and the conversation need to have a global footprint or relevance. Mm-hmm. It's very important. You
0: said you were moving into different directions in terms of your current work, right? Yeah, so I was moving, exactly,
1: transdisciplinary and thinking a little bit more about international platforms. Where is it that right. I need to be talking to? That's not only the Middle East, because after six years of doing full-time Middle East, I'm, I'm pretty well connected. I know who is who, how can we think together, you know, to go more in, into international platforms and have conversation. I mean, I would have never met you, Srila, you know, had we not mm-hmm. had that chance So this is, I think, the direction in which I was headed to. And this is the direction I will take now with Khadid Beirut as the foundation for transdisciplinary work. I don't want to sit with more political scientists. I know what they think. You know, I want to sit with environmental health people. I want to sit with business people. I want to sit. I don't want to sit only, for example, on gender working only with advocates because I I I do that and we do that. But we need to sit with the healthcare professionals. You know, we need to sit with the nurses who are majority women who are on the frontliners, and nobody talks to them about political science and policy. Right. I mean, can I
0: just ask if your students share this as well? This commitment to really, you know, to have research which is very much fueled by their political or activist leanings—is—is is that that's something that's happened in this moment of layered crises, or has that been something that's always there in your observation of students at AUB, but more generally?
1: So our students are very engaged, very active, and and there are many ways for them to engage. And their engagement is, you know, you know, there's a spectrum of engagement. I think from the typical sort of American model of civic engagement and volunteering but also to working you know, a lot on student elections and taking part in different movements across the country. So yes, I think you know, historically, a lot of their thesis have been around. So I, you know, I, I teach in public administration as a discipline. So a lot of their thesis has been on you know, corruption, uh, reforms, the challenges to reform mm. uh, and things like that. But I think in this moment, it's, we've been through so much. I think it's too soon for me to tell you, like, you know, how that's gonna impact their research. I feel like we're all still reeling. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of long silence in, in the class. We sit, we listen. I I don't I can't, I couldn't tell you, you know, as of now, like this semester, how it will affect their research agenda. But I'm trying and many of us are trying to, to get them to think about their victimhood differently, right? And yeah. use their, you know, papers and, and, you know, assignments to think about, you know, real life problems. And mm. they do. I mean, I teach a course on, on gender and politics and we're in the midst of a crisis. They do. I don't know if they'll be able to produce research it's it's getting very expensive to live in Beirut and very difficult so let's see
0: yeah, I mean, again, for people who don't know, do you want to give us a sense of exactly how insanely expensive it is and what it means to survive in an economy that's basically imploding? Yeah, so I mean, I'm not good with economics, but I can tell you, like, my my salary
1: is worth, you know, eight times less than it was worth last year, right? So the dollar was 1500 The dollar today in the black market is 9500 that means that there 's about like fifty percent or more as Qua says more people living under poverty line, staggering unemployment, of course, no financial incentive, no response mm-hmm. from the government, and people lost all of their savings. so the university actually aUB had to lay off like nine hundred people, which we 're not proud of we 're not happy of, but it 's you know, such as is most institutions in the country. I mean, yesterday, I had a friend of mine and he owns gyms, and he, he called crying he said we I'm sorry, we haven't been talking. I said, no problem. He said, we have to shut down, you know, all our businesses. So it's been, uh, it's been very heavy. And that of course affects the quality of research at a research institution, right? Affects, you know, students' motivation to do research. Research is expensive. You need to fund it. You need to have the time and space. As I was telling you, like when I first became a visiting assistant professor, I was like, this is great. You know, I'm going to get paid to produce theory and to sit and think about this, Right and 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 now it's it's about survival budget cuts and larger classrooms and and you know running and writing grants so let's see i i don't know
0: i mean I was but I've, I've written team, more
1: I i've written more angry tweets and grants in the last 3 months than ever in my life <laughs> i'm not writing anything of of substance right i mean well arguably <laughs>
0: Yeah, but that's exactly what I was thinking, right? That how does this, you know, how how does the life of the university survive under these conditions? I mean, already we've been, you know, I, I myself have been on a number of webinars where we've been talking about, well, you know, how does the pandemic and the shift to online affect learners in the global South and sure in South Africa, I can also talk about how we have regular load shading and even without so, I mean, basically, to suggest that even outside of the pandemic and lockdown, there are so many systemic inequalities and there's so many challenges, right? But when I think of Lebanon, it's just like, oh my goodness, I mean, where does one even start, right? Because, and, and, and again, I suppose more conceptually, that makes me think about whether even the, the, the term crisis actually encapsulates what's happening. Um, or what has been happening for a long time there, right? So, so I, I suppose, yeah. I mean, two things. One is, you know, how how is one producing, learning, uh, sharing knowledge uh, in under these conditions? And and how best would you would you describe that? To be, I mean, would you would you just call it a crisis?
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because the summer that we met at Wits, that week-long uh, exchange was about crisis as a framework, right? Oh, Do
0: that's
1: right. Re- remember, like, is crisis, you know, helping to explain different experiences across the continent, that's but right. also myself and Pakistan, I remember, that's across the right. African continent. And that week long was thinking, is crisis useful? Yes, it's useful as a category of analysis. Right now, it's not useful for us in Beirut because it's been too much of it, right? Mm. So the Syrian refugee crisis started in 2011. It's been 10 years. Like, this is a protracted situation of misery and inequality. And the education crisis, it's not the right word to describe it because it's been 30 years of deliberative policies by the government to underfund public universities, to crush freedoms across public schools. Crush, we don't have a history book because they can't agree on the history of Lebanon. Mm. So our history books stop in 1943, independence, because politicians consider different battles differently. We don't have a narrative. So you can imagine that coupled with very expensive infrastructure and living conditions. We pay two electricity bills, and only the lucky ones have internet. So Khabbik Beirut is actually work with selected schools, uh, 15 of them, and this work is read by Dr. Rima akkari with the community and graduate students from eight universities to support turning select schools in the devastated areas into community centers. So it's not about you know fundraising and donating you know for laptops which, which we're doing, but it's also about coming together with the parents and the teachers and the students and 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 the university students and opening up AUB to the community and bringing the community into AUB so we can turn you know maybe just one school into a model community school right mm-hmm. that supports in rehabilitation that supports in mental health that supports the revival of the streets that talks. You know a language of community and inclusion so
0: it's a disaster. Could we go back to the revolution which was certainly I mean at least to me but I think for a lot of us at that time was this really this moment of extraordinary hope and again as someone who is obviously been involved in it and op but is also able to critically reflect on it yeah what are your reflections at the moment and how has that revolutionary moment Uh, endured through all these conditions of pandemic, of explosion?
1: It's endured beyond anybody's expectation, right? Right. Because protest movements and social movements use collective action on the street as one form of resisting. We have been resisting by supporting each other financially, supporting those less privileged than us, protesting, taking on strategic litigation, running around the lawyers' uh, uh, volunteer group. Every time someone gets arrested for a tweet or an opinion to go to the police station and free them, volunteering their time to provide legal advice. During the pandemic, in the absence of any clear regulation and policy from the government, we came together as a virtual community. One year after the protests, we took to the streets thousands of people and lit, I don't know how to say this in English, like a, like a symbolic gesture, like a fire mm-hmm. at the port, right? Um, so the, the protest movement uh, that started as a revolutionary movement has become a, a social network, right, an abeyance kind of uh, movement in that mm-hmm. we're still together. I mean, it's still the same people talking about the same things. But I'm over that romanticization of the moment because I don't think we can recreate it because the system oppresses too many of us differently. So we're naturally inclined to disagree. It's impossible mm-hmm. to unite people who are oppressed in different ways, right? Yes. I didn't think I would experience it, but when you endure you know, financial loss, you and your cousin are going to have a fight over what benefits to cut, right? What laws need to pass. So politicians are so... They're so nasty that they make us to begin pick and choose, right? So some people say, oh, maybe we can give them a chance. Perhaps the dollar will come down. And it's, it's, it's impossible to keep up pressure when you're hurt from so many different ways. And politicians are able to divide, you know, and polarize people. So in that sense, I think we continue, but we continue through issue-based fights, each of us seeing, you know, different priorities, different issues to work on. I think these are sort of my initial reflections um, it's impossible to restore that moment. And I don't want to look back. I, I refuse to look back. I'm, I'm okay with, 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 you know, working and leading in times of uncertainty and resisting.
0: Um, I don't think we're resilient. I think we are in resistance mode. And I see it all around. What you're suggesting is that there, it wasn't so much that because of the pandemic, the popular uprising just stopped. It, it's almost as if even before that, it was changing shape. I mean, different people will have different opinions on this. I
1: think it was the financial crisis more so than the pandemic mm. um, that got people like me to say, "Look, I'm I'm exhausted. Like, I need to run and find medicine for my dad, and you know, figure out my own fight and my own institution for my salary, and think about my friends I'm like, We got exhausted by March, um, and I think that the financial situation uh, made us depressed and scared and worried. I think less so the pandemic. So people are, are really poor. And, and in, t- in times of poverty, contrary to popular opinion that poor people will revolt, in times of poverty, uh, people's uh, voice and agency uh, is bought, is bribed, is stolen, is oppressed. Mm-hmm. And people are more scared than ever. There's more censorship. Uh, so I think that the crush, that's why I was saying I, sh- I should have expected it. I didn't expect it. I I thought, you know, I thought very innocently, like we will take to the streets. We will be so many. They'll do something. I mean, anything. They'll they'll approve universal basic income. They'll fix the streetlights. They'll fix garbage. Lebanon stinks of garbage. There's garbage all over the streets. They'll do something. We were so innocent. They didn't do anything and they oppressed and crushed and divided and infiltrated and then ruined our reputation. Imagine, Srila, all TV stations on 17 October, one year after the revolution, there was a united narrative. What did the revolution accomplish? Can you imagine? And we had to fight and say, we don't have to accomplish anything. What did the government accomplish? Mm -hmm. We've lost our money, our health. Some people, 200 people died in that explosion. So they flipped the narrative into, look, protest doesn't lead anywhere. What have they accomplished? I had to have serious conversations and explain politics 101 on the media. Say, people in power accomplish. Protest movements demand, you idiots. So I think it's more so, it's less the pandemic, in my opinion. It's systemic oppression. They control the media, the banks, the weapons, the courts. That's it. So we have to find another way to resist.
0: But that's so interesting, right, Carmen? Because obviously, you know, so much, and for very good reasons, right? Like so much of our, our thinking, our imagination, our everyday lives is just caught in this crisis around uh, Corona and, and COVID, right? But here you're saying that how that, that moment is folded into, uh, you know, an existing structure, which is, which is actually going to persist beyond that. And I, I feel very similarly, about what's happening in India. And I think if we had comrades from Chile, they'd, they'd say similar things. Because remember, Chile was also going through, you know, massive popular protests around the same time. So I, I suppose it makes me think much more broadly about uh, protest and protest cultures in the global south. And I suppose, you know, that's what I said at the start, that that's something I've always, you know, I've always thought I wanted to hear what what you, Kamran, have to say about this. Because in a way, I do think, you know, our, we face enormous amounts of uh, state repression. And again, so much of what you're saying is very recognizable to me from what uh, people in the streets have faced in India, right? Just like the onslaught of state repression. Um, and, and, and we have to be careful not to romanticize people's capacities to come back out of that, right? But then how, how do we uh, uh, as engaged scholars um, activists, whatever, however you want to call it, how how do we talk about these moments in a way that doesn't romanticize or exceptionalize, but at the same time, you know, offers I don't know some kind of um, hope for people who are engaged in these in these struggles, right, which are very alive. I don't know. I mean, that's not really that's not really a question. I think it's just more like me trying to make sense of how do we make sense.
1: I think it will take time to make sense. I think for me, I'm 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 in action mode right now. I think it's my coping mechanism. So I'm trying to move from broad-based mobilization because we can't restore that moment. Right? It's 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 a moment that was lost. It 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 played its part. It pushed towards some change in national consciousness, but I can't recreate it. So my way is to try to go into issue-based. I I wanna. You know look at instances of corruption explain the implications on our health and the health of the community and find another way to do it and make peace with the fact that for now they're not going to do anything and they're they're not able to do anything um and i think the pandemic and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well um made made many authoritarian uh, regimes stronger i mean it made politicians they and you know they look like heroes i mean people sit and listen to our minister of health as if he's the savior because people are sick and they're scared. And it strengthened, you know, the most irrelevant caretaker government in Lebanon's history um, that actually resigned after the explosion, but because they can't form a government. So you see them on TV and people, you know, people listen. My parents listen to them. So it's made people who are negligent, corrupt, Irrelevant stars because they are speaking, you know, the little science that they know. Wear your mask, social distancing. You know, these are the regulations, and people listen to them. So I think it's made them stronger.
0: But as far as I can tell, on there, a lot of volunteers and just ordinary people who, I mean, especially after the explosion, I mean, that's what a lot of the media footage was full of, full of. I mean, at least on social media, maybe not mainstream media. You know, just ordinary people going and just literally picking up garbage and getting you know shit together. And in, and in a way which really showed that there was no institutional support from the government, right? So has, But has that moment sort of passed? I
1: think, Srila, this is the way we are resisting. You captured it very well. I think that uh, instead of focusing on ousting them and toppling them, we are making news headlines by going mm-hmm. down to the street. It's not just picking up garbage. Volunteers had to clean glass. And you know glass, if you breathe it, or gets in your eyes, it, it kills your lungs. A city full of glass. I'm talking 300,000 homes shattered. The city was full of glass and blood and body parts. People picked up dead bodies from under the rubble, 18 year old kids. And that's the story. And today the story is not that they're horrible, we know this, you know, I've written about this, I've published about, uh, m- many people have been saying sectarian power sharing doesn't work, we, we know this. The new way forward is we're going to go and fix it ourselves, from the micro level, one school at a time, one primary healthcare system at a time, one local business at a time, and we're going to try to make gains around the environment, one issue at a time. That's it. There's no other way. We're looking at the port now. We did the petition; two thousand people signed it. We sent a request to access to, of information. We sent it to the minister's office. We said, "Look, there's grain at the port." Hundred days later. Are you going to sell this to people to eat because it's full of asbestos? So one issue at a time we have nothing to lose we're going to keep on bothering them stealing the headlines and pretending right that they're going to answer until maybe they answer. I think what what bothers politicians the most Srila uh, especially around gender is that we is that we dare to ask for a rights based approach. Right, It's that, that, we, that we're still hopeful that we're here. They're like, why are these people are still alive? How can we crush them? And we stand and say human rights, censorship, access to information, environmental health, things they don't even talk about. They don't understand. They don't have the competency to understand. So that's how, that's how I'm going to resist. What do you think?
0: So uh, I mean, uh, gosh, I'm thinking about a lot of things. But just on the point of gender, I think I said this uh, before that I was quite struck with some of the very explicit sloganing and graffiti around gender and sexual rights. I mean, I don't know why I was surprised, to be honest, because I think the, even at that time, the face of the revolution was young and female, right. And again, now in this, in the post explosion pandemic moment, again, Uh, you know, at least from what I've seen, it's a lot of it has been like young women on the streets, right, and young women in front of cameras. And, And it's not surprising, because it is women, as we know, who do this kind of care and repair work. But As someone who, again, you know, has this dual role of doing being involved in those communities, but also as a scholar of civil society activism in particular, do you see any dangers of that where, you know, women are the ones who are, who obviously, as we know, already do the unpaid labor in our domestic labor in our societies, and this just adds another layer of vulnerability and burden on them. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, two different observations. So in the revolution, it was
1: a good thing that women are at the forefront because it proved what we've been saying and studying for years. Look, if you change the structure of political participation, women naturally will be half or more in power, right? So because the revolution was... Uh, decentralized it it, it was to a large extent very inclusive like you're saying women were at the forefront we didn't decide we didn't like say okay well now we're going to put young female voices Mm -hmm. they just emerged because that process was participatory and inclusive enough so when we used to organize talks in the tents you know women suddenly oh there are women in this country that understand law and economy oh look they're young women who have you know been marginalized for many years and they want to speak up the revolution was intersectional in its structures Mm. Now, the, the post-explosion is different, and you are correct in saying that it's a very dangerous trend, right? Because women, again, I mean, in Khadid beirut we are major, majority women, right? Mm. And especially for the needs of the community, healthcare workers are mostly women. Uh, women-owned businesses end up mm. being, you know, hurt more, right, In any situation of disaster and conflict. But I think that we don't have the choice uh, not to do it. It's, it's you know, it's, we don't have the choice. I don't think we have the choice. And for a lot of my colleagues, and when I talk to them, I mean, it doesn't even cross their mind what you're saying, right, Srila? Because I think this also has to do with, you know, gender studies not being accessible. You know, we don't think about our roles in that way unless we've studied it, unless someone comes and says, look, care, economy and labor. We don't think about it like that. That's why I was Mm -hmm. saying we need to have these conversations across disciplines. It cannot be the humanities and the social sciences at the forefront it has to be people from different disciplines that's why our gender center at AUB is strategically um, hosted in the School of Business, led by Dr. Charlotte Karam, because we want to work on inclusive employment policies right we want to work on gender sensitive policies so that women don't have to keep fighting for that on their own
0: right wow <laughs> again like so so many directions in which we could take this, but just again, going back to um, the point of, you know, we have, and, and I guess that's sort of continues with what we're saying this, you know, we just have to get on with them, we have to do it. And almost because we have no choice. Uh, but, but again, I'm wondering about how, and these are very old arguments that you will know, you know, how that obviously has risked that danger of where the state abdicates more responsibility, right, which already, uh, you know, we know that governments do, they give, I mean, they they give away responsibility to the development sector, to NGOs, uh, to foreign aid. And now if, and, and in a kind of neoliberal era where there's already so much um, you know, impetus on individuals to kind of lean in and do their, do their business. How, how, again, how would you as, uh, you know, in your own everyday practices as kind of critical thinking engaged uh, citizens, you know hold that tension in a way of getting things done but also holding the state accountable
1: yeah I'm I'm very critical I mean I I I'm very sad that actually this disaster will make NGOs richer and fatter and people will become poorer and more sick I'm very critical of the nonprofit sector my book was on mm-hmm. the failure of civil society of which I was part at the time um, but uh, we're there I mean What I'm saying is that you're right, it's very bad, but we're there. I mean, we are in an Iraq-Afghanistan model of aid where the state has abdicated full responsibility. I'm still thinking of how to combine humanitarian relief and aid and inclusive recovery together with accountability. But we can't only do accountability because I think our job is to return our sense of agency and dignity. I can't do that. If I'm insulted every day, I have to stand in line to, to access my money or if I don't have a roof over, over my head. So I think you're right, we have to find a balance. I'm not sure what it is yet, Srila, uh, but we're there. We're, we're at a stage where the Lebanese state and politicians don't feel the necessity to do anything. So we have to find a way. I should say though that Khadid Beirut for us, like we're a national initiative and an international movement. Like we're not an NGO. Right. We don't see ourselves as an NGO at all. We're not, we're a movement.
0: And, and so how do you sustain it? Because obviously the question of NGOization is about sustainability and well money, essentially, right?
1: I agree. Um, uh, we're we're in it. I mean, it's a three. It's been three months. I think that we what we did in three months in terms of creating the roadmap and mobilizing each other were a hundred people here of uh, experts, activists, professionals and friends and athletes and what have you. So we're 100 people here with about 100 people in major cities across the world. I think now the conversation starts now that we've we've done the roadmap, we've we've worked with the community, we've identified the needs. I think now the conversation around how do we sustain, how do we institutionalize Mm. will start and I don't have the answer because, you know, I don't have the answer. I mean, I would like um, to find a way to align this work with, with my ability to have a job.
0: Mm. But
1: I don't want my ability to have a job to trump the need to do this. So we have to think about it.
0: But you know, Carmen, what's really interesting is uh, as someone who also uh, studies, I suppose, NGOs, I mean, I've been looking, my my current book project has, has, is essentially about, you know, women's NGOs in, in India or NGOs looking at sexual rights, gender rights, and so on and so forth. And I do think, that, you know, we as scholars or as academics, uh, we fall quite easily into that mode of, of critique, right? Uh, of critiquing processes of NGOization. And there are such substantial critiques, particularly in our locations. But I think what you're saying is, is, is possibly what, you know, the actual people in those spaces are also saying that, you know, the conditions under which they're operating produce various kinds of constraints and some of, And and I don't know, I almost feel, I don't know what you think as academics, you know, sure, we have our own constraints, but we also, you know, we're also salaried individuals who are going into these spaces and who can make those critiques without facing the kind of backlash or accountability that people in those uh, spaces feel. I mean, so, you know, while I was concluding this book, which is very critical in some respect of NGOization, if not individual NGOs, I was thinking, what is that? what does my critique mean at this very moment when an authoritarian right-wing government is literally squeezing out the possibility of NGOs and civil society, right? It's like literally squashing civil society. So, and, and, and now my critique feels very different. It's going to land very differently from when I started the project, when, you know, the conditions were not that intense. Do you see what I mean? So I'm just wondering what is then our responsibility. And and also I'm just wondering for yourself that has, have you now being being in this position where you're basically saying, you know, I have no choice. I have to mobilize on the ground, literally, because this is survival of myself, my family, my community. Does that then, does that then scale up and inflect the kind of more critical takes that we have?
1: Wow, you are very, very wise.
0: <laughs> about that, um,
1: that you know, it's been. Uh, because my life and my work are so interlinked. I've had over the years uh, so many p- fights with people I love, right? Because of being too critical or too harsh and vice versa, right? Of, mm-hmm. of f- friends who are activists who are critical say, you know, you, you know, you're paid a fancy salary. You're sitting at AUB and writing all this work about why we fail and why we're not enough. Come, right. and <laughs> come do better. So it's been very, per- I mean, this, what you're saying has been a, strikes a very personal note um, because I decided a year ago that I will, you know, I will also s- stop what people perceive to be attacks on them and their profession and focus more on structures and institutions so my my worry about the NGO sector is about my worry on foreign aid dependency on the hegemonic order of aid uh, and on institutions that end up benefiting including my own but not on people and that's a very thin line to navigate. Mm -hmm. while also what you're saying, contextualizing that in a system that's oppressing us further. So rather than saying NGOs are bad, saying what spaces we need them to be engaging in and what we need to be protecting as well. Um, Because you're right, these programs, I mean, will be critical for a lot of people. So thank you for, you know, for striking a chord, for um, articulating it so well. And I'll take it in and I'll do better uh, in being critical. I think it's important to find a balance between critical critical thinking and cynicism and I don't want to come off as a cynic and I don't want to I don't think it's helpful to continue with this trend of NGOization NGOization and then they reply mm-hmm. and say oh well academia is irrelevant it's not helpful you're right
0: no totally and I think it's interesting I wonder if it's something that again we and I use the we in in quotations not to homogenize our conditions but I feel it's something that it's particularly we're burdened with right of 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 what, what, what are these, you know, of making critique, but being caring in our critique. And, and And also, like you're saying, how the critique goes both ways. So academics are perceived as very ivory tower elites who have nothing to do with what's happening, and so on and so forth. For me, I don't know about you, it feels like this is the beginning of a conversation. So maybe I know. We need I, to... I just want you to come back. I <laughs> yeah. want
1: Corona to be over so we can bring you back to Beirut oh, yes. and have this Thank conversation. You. I agree. I mean I, I'm I have this tendency to 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 end every conversation with action. So this is a project, Serena. Let's let's work on something. Maybe but, a series.
0: <laughs> but, but but just b- before that, I want to take us right back to the start, where obviously I said I visited, and you said you were you were at Wits, right? On as part of that Mellon project. So I just wanted finally to get your thoughts on something I've just been thinking a lot about. I mean, you know, I do I lead a Mellon project called Governing Intimacies, and part of what we've been doing this year has been really think ha- trying to curate these conversations, which are all about you know, South, talking to South, to put it crudely, right? So mostly amongst uh, Indian scholars and those located in South and Southern Africa. For someone like yourself, who's been part of these collaborations, but also I think of AUB also as a space that does that, but also as a space that also is also oriented towards the North, as Wits is too, as you know. So yeah, to take the conversation and to end it on a slightly different register, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on on whether, you know, when we talk about this like South-South collaborations, whether that is actually meaningful for ourselves and our students, or is that something that we're just, you know, we're coming up with another kind of uh, sexy terminology of, and ultimately we're doing just the same thing.
1: Big question at the end of a very heated podcast <laughs> how should i answer this I, I for me it's been life-changing to to think about the south south collaboration it's it was life-changing to do the fellowship just because not only do i feel that when i talk to people from the global south and again mm. not to homogenize i feel seen and heard mm. and it helps me get out of this framing of victimhood right again local to Global South, maybe it shouldn't be Global North or Global North together. I think it's important to produce Indigenous knowledge. Mm. But these conversations are are very helpful. But I feel that they're not well captured. Like Mm -hmm. it's still at the level of conferences, right? We're still Mm not writing enough together, visiting enough. We're not getting our students to to benefit enough. I feel like for me, at least, it's been more conversation. I I want to make it more concrete. And uh, maybe this is something we can think about.
0: Yeah, Carmen, I absolutely agree. You know, I also think it is actually, it's also been so productive and I would say, yeah, life-changing as well. That, I mean, ultimately we've all been really just thinking about similar things in silos, but we've never had these quite sustained exchanges. And I certainly think, yeah, that's where, and this is not about like saying, oh, well, we don't want to be in Northern spaces or conferences. I just, I don't, you're right. I think we have to stop talking about it in terms of, conferences, right? It's, it's actually about thinking together and thinking different possibilities. And I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, it's a project of building new forms of epistemic communities almost, right? And new, new uh, epistemic infrastructure. So how do we get our students, for instance, to very seriously be in conversation with one another? And whether that's through exchanges or whether that's through now online reading groups, I don't know. So, yeah, maybe this is this is a good way to end because it is something that, you know, suggests a a future of different kinds of possibilities in spite of it all. Right. I don't know. I love it. Sign me up. I love that. (laughs) You know, as I kind of predicted, I think I always really learn from you. And uh, and I really mean that, you know, through through everything, all the little bits of things that I read online or even uh, the stray webinar that I that I catch, and today just suggests to me how much more there is there is to talk about, right? Because it, it just resonates more. And I think all of us are grappling differently with similar questions about civil society, about activism, about resistance, about authoritarian regimes, and yeah, and what do we do with it? How do we sustain ourselves, our communities? How do we think of hopeful pedagogies and futurity in this in this moment, right? So thanks, Carmen. Um, thank you so much for, for your time, your thank spirit. You. I'm honored
1: you would say that because <laughs> I also follow you and learn from you. And I think that one way to to build on mutual respect, I think, and I, I, it is to start. Maybe we can start breaking our own silos slowly mm. and then finding a way to, to you know invite others in and students. And, and I'd love to. I also learn from you. I'm honored that you said that. Thank you.
0: <laughs> okay. And just a final, I think, shout out that we should both do to the the Spotlight Series uh, people who are Chantel and Tiso, thank you so much for giving us this platform. I think it's it's not always the case that, you know, our, our colleagues and comrades in the, in the North gave us a seat at the table. So we're very grateful. And yeah, we hope everyone who listens enjoys this podcast. Okay, thanks so much, Carmen. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.